Hey, everybody. Welcome to Disrupt TV, and we're in the green room today. I'm live here from Newark Airport, which is an amazing place. Maybe. Just kidding. Okay, welcome, everybody, here. And, of course, with my amazing co-host, Bala Afshar, and, of course, El, our producer. So I'm going to do some quick introductions. I'm going to ask our guests, where are you coming in from today? And more importantly, what are you talking about? And a very, very quick segment. So, Rich, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? Thanks, Ray. Coming in from balmy Chicago, Illinois today. Woo. And uh, love to talk a little bit about how people think, plan, and act strategically to drive their business. Very, very cool. Very, very important in terms of strategy. And we've got Marga. Marga, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? Hi, Ray. Coming in from Amsterdam, so far away. And I'm going to talk, hopefully, a lot about my new book, Just Launched, Tech for Good. Uh, we need tech for good in a time of all these conversations. Something good has to come about. So thank you for being here. Joe, where are we coming in from? What are we talking about? I'm calling in from uh, just South Florida. It's a little bit warmer than uh, Rich, but uh, sunny South Florida, so just north of Miami. Uh, here to talk a little bit about store experience and kind of the associate experience. It's really interesting. Everybody from South Florida says sunny South Florida. And you know, it's a Trinvala. <laughs> well, this is great. <laughs> I'm going to turn it back to Elle, and uh, we'll kick off the show. All right. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on X at Disrupt TV Show. Send us your questions and our guest, uh, to our guests and we'll hopefully be able to answer you using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's Ray Wong, CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I see Ray on TV just about every day. Uh, he's a business and tech contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, and CNBC. In my humble opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Bala Astro, the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of the best-selling book, which I don't have in my hand, Boundless. And more importantly, it's talking about unlimited business. It's the mindset. And it's, of course, you can get it on Amazon. And executives around the world follow every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. You can see him keynoting, speaking live at Salesforce events and other events around the world. And more importantly, you can follow him on business TV outlets like Bloomberg and, of course, his insightful posts on ZDNet. But, of course, it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And every week we kick off with someone amazing. Who do we have today? 
not just someone. We get the best and brightest CEOs to come on Disrupt TV, and there's no exception here. Joe Corbin, CEO of Jump Mind. Jump Mind spurs business transformation with cutting-edge software built for speed, quality, and flexibility. As the chief executive officer and president of JumpMind, Joe is responsible for sustainable and responsible growth within the business. Under his leadership, JumpMind has been hyper-focused on customer outcomes and success. He leads a team of passionate ex-retailers and engineers whose primary mission is solving retailers' challenges in the most innovative ways. Joe has spent his career in retail with prior role at Oracle Retail in Solution Consulting and Abercrombie Fitch in-store systems where he ran large multinational POS projects. Welcome, Joe, to Disrupt TV. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nice to see you both. Thank you, sir. Hey, we're really excited to have you here. And more importantly, right, this is the best season, the best time of year for commerce. And of course, one of the biggest things that often becomes a troubling piece is the return season afterwards. Um, so one of the biggest interesting, uh, I mean, the hits on margin is always going to be that return management piece. What are people doing upfront to minimize return, which is like the hardest, most complicated logistical part of the back end of commerce? Yeah, it's it's a it's a huge challenge, you know, in this time of year, especially. I think you see retailers struggling with it. Obviously, there's the margin hit, Ray, that you mentioned. There's potentials for fraud, of course, that affect retailers during this time of year. And then there's the seasonal aspect of returns, right? I bought something during the holiday season. If I don't return until the spring and I'm an apparel retailer, what do I do with that, right? So it causes tons of challenges. I think from a fraud perspective, you know, it's really about providing the ability to have visibility into returns. We've done some of this work with Petco, actually, so they're one of our clients, and we started working with them to help them with returns fraud that they were having with a legacy POS solution and leverage some microservices to give the stores visibility to the returns, but also give them the ability to set up rules and enforce the rules of the POS themselves. You know, so that's kind of like how you can handle the fraud side of it. I think the reality of returns, though, just generally, is that they're not slowing down. You know, I, it, you'll see that consumers are voting with their wallets as it relates to return policies that retailers have. Like a stricter policy means customers are less likely to shop there. I know just as, as a consumer myself, right? You buy something, it doesn't fit. Like if, if I have to pay for shipping or go out of my way to get that back to the retailer, I'm less likely to purchase from them again. So, you know, my view is like brick and mortar retailers have the advantage here. Because a re return in store really gives them the capability to, or the ability to sell, right? Or buy online, return in store, right? In those kind of yeah. scenarios, or buy online and minimize returns because better configuration, right, comes into exactly. play. Yeah, you want to try and find a way to get away from bracketing as much as you can, right? Yes. Like everybody's buying, a, you know, I, I'm a medium typically, but then there's some brands like I'm not sure. So you buy a medium and a large, and I think you'll see a lot of online merchants are using. Uh, using widgets on their website to help you kind of dial in what the right sizing is based upon other customer experiences and those sorts of things, which I think can really bring it, you know, bring that down, the likelihood of it. But for me, the, the one last thing I'll say on this, I think I think it's about seeing the forest of the trees on returns for retailers this holiday season. Is don't, don't look as a return experience as a negative. I think it's an opportunity. And every, every opportunity that you have to, in, you know, to impact a consumer or one of your customers, I think you need to take advantage of. I want to ex ex expand on the discussion of, of minimizing returns, but also um, talk about the National Retail Foundation, NRF. I believe is the largest retail conference in the U.S. It's happening, I believe, January um, yeah. of, of, of 2024. 
and uh, I'm always anxious. What what are the themes? What will be the topics? Um, I know that just during Cyber Week, my company looked at about 1.5 billion transactions, uh, commerce transactions, and we saw for the first time very close to one in five dollars of spend, which uh, which added up to 51 billion dollars of digital spend, was impacted by AI-powered recommendations. So AI played a role in terms of personalized offerings that helped lessen abandoned shopping carts and and equate to nearly one in five dollars of commerce, commerce revenue. So I'm sure AI is going to be a big topic at NRF. But I'm thinking like with computer visioning and ability to, again, you said widgets, but, you know, there are technology you can embed now that perhaps can use machine learning, computer visioning, even build into chatbots recommendations so that you can make, uh, uh, have your customers make more informed decision, in your case, medium size vary by brand, and guide us so that we can minimize that friction of buying something that just doesn't fit. What do you anticipate uh, we're going to hear a lot about at NRF, and what are some of your company's narrative um, at, at the conference? Yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, you're definitely right about AI. I think you're going to see <laughs> AI is pervasive in everything. And, you know, everybody's talking about it. Uh, I think you're going to see that for sure. And one of the areas that's interesting, if you think, so my company, you know, is focused on POS and kind of the yes. experience. And in where we see a potential for AI and some retailers are starting to look at it and, and you know, find use cases for it is really around this idea of manager and associate productivity, right? I, I was... I was doing a store visit recently with one of our customers and I had a conversation with the store manager and she was struggling with basically it's her and one other person work, working in the store and they're covering different zones within that store. So she's supposed to be at the front, associates in the back, they're handling returns, whatever it might be. And the communication between them is challenging, right? Because managers got to leave, walk to the back. Now you've got the entire front of the store. It's a fraud issue. Somebody walks by and grabs a hand. Sure. It's customer service issue, those sorts of things. So we as a company are looking at ways, how do I put more tools in place to allow in-store communication, right? So like, let me just authorize that return remotely, you know, or in the front of the Hmm. store, that manager where she stands. But I think you're even seeing retailers like uh, Walmart start to look at using AI and computer vision to the point uh, at looking at shelves and saying, hey, like, let let me not have associates looking for work. Let me tell them what they need to do. They're doing it with spills. Like, okay, if something's spilled in aisle 17, like, let me tell an associate, go to aisle 17 and clean that up. So we're taking it in and looking and saying, how can we stop giving managers and associates information? How can we start telling them what they need to do or helping helping give them guidance on what they should be doing? So prescriptive use of analytics. Yeah. It, it, it's graduating from descriptive, diagnostic, predictive to prescriptive, where you're prescribing the action that the store associate should consider uh, executing in order to optimize the customer experience or inventory or wh- whatever it may be to, again, productivity and overall experience. So that, that's great. That's it. Exactly. That's it. And I think, I think traditionally in the store world, it's been very, it's been very dis- descriptive, you know, here yeah. your sales are X or you're under plan. Like, right. Okay, right. What am I supposed to do about that? Right? Right. right. I think it's, it's giving them information about, okay, you're under plan, but here's the things based on trends that we're seeing that would actually help you reach if it's total items for a transaction or if it's total sales in a day or whatever those sorts of things are. Because I think what you'll find is that, you know, the research is out there that, that you know, store associates oftentimes don't feel like they have enough information and customers come into a store and feel like they're smarter than the associates. 
Yeah. So we want to give we want to empower the associate to give as much information as we can so they can be successful. Joe, do you yeah. think combination? Do you think combination of sensors or computer visioning will allow you, uh, stores and staff to apply? Um, I don't have a term for it, like dynamic zoning, where you actually can monitor traffic, uh, foot traffic in the store, and it may be the new Nike shoe is changed the dynamic where people are taking more rights versus lefts when they come in the store, and now. You may want to change zones based on real-time analysis of where the interest is coming into the into the store. It's a good question, a good point. There's there's newer technologies out there, and one of the brands we work with is uh, doing some proof of concepts mm -hmm. on one. Basically, you're using RFID and computer vision that is able to it's it's able to spot an item that's been picked up, how long it's been called for, if it's been placed back down, if it's been moved, those sorts of things. Which are super interesting, right? Really? That's basically what you get in an e-commerce experience because you can see right. how long someone's been on a page. But historically, in the non-digital space inside of a store, it's like you don't have any way to know that sort of information. So taking that and giving it to an associate and saying, yeah, focus in this area based on traffic makes a lot of sense. It'd be like a five-second route of food and a 10-second you know, rule on the uh, stuffed animals. <laughs> That's what you're saying. So, but hey, but the, that is great tech, right? We're talking a little about AI here, a little bit on computer vision, uh, and of course, you know what, what else is going on in the return site. What are, what are the trends you're seeing? I mean, oh, thumbs up, thumbs down, metaverse up, down, middle. Yeah, unknown at this point. I think it's I think it's middle at best. You know, in my hmm. opinion. So a digital, stores. when you say, Ray, when you say metaverse, you mean like a digital twin of a store where you can get deeper analytics or, or I, I, I just want to, for my clarity. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm thinking about like, what does it mean for uh, companies actually creating the, the brand experience online, right? Okay. And the digital twin will actually happen as well if you're trying to kind of run through the store, but it's really all some of the metaverse commerce models that okay. were in place. And I wonder and really when are... point of sale will include crypto. Like, can I... When can I go to a Walmart and buy using Ethernet? I mean, sorry, yeah. uh, Ethernet, e e Ethereum. Yeah, we have, we have a partner that provides it. You know, like oh, really, really buy in and pay with Bitcoin and those sorts of things. I think the reality is that the average consumer doesn't. You know, so it's, yeah. it yeah. doesn't take off. But it's, I think all that stuff is very bleeding edge. But I think you'll start to see, you know, components of those win and actually make it into the retail kind of environment. You know, I think yeah. the other interesting. Oh, go ahead, Ray. Sorry. No, go ahead. Good. So you're saying I was going to say some of the other areas that I think I think what you're going to see trend wise occur just over the holiday season generally is I think it's a bit of a consumer going to become a consumer referendum on the retailers that are winning or losing the store space. And obviously that's where we cover uh, at JumpMind. I think what you see is a lot of retailers have old kind of broken systems that cause difficult experience for consumers. And I think consumers have caught on. Right. They, they understand they know the stores that provide the experiences they expect, like, you know, buy line pickup in store. That's an expectation. It's not a it's not a you know, it's not something extraordinary anymore. Being able to tap to pay is an expectation. And I'll tell you a story. The, the other day I was at the gym. I left and I was driving home and my wife had asked me to pick something up at the store. So I go to a very large retailer that we would all know. And I and I uh, got out of the car, started walking in the front door. And I I never I just don't bring my wallet to the gym. Because and I can tap to pay everywhere, and at Whole Foods I can use my palm to pay now. So uh, I walked to the front, and I remembered uh, they don't have tap to pay. So it was irritating, right? So I got to go back into my car, and I drove out of my way to go to a different store to get the same, you know, the same item. So wow. to me, it's like 
that's a ton of friction. And if your competitors offered and you don't, you're going to lose customers. So I think that's a bit of what is really trending as it relates to the store experience and thinking about the holiday, you know, shopping time. Got it. I like I like yeah. the fact that ultimately you're pointing to the less friction, the better experience. So give me back time while I'm in store and make sure I walk out without having to come back because of wrong fit or whatever the reason is to create a return opportunity. So it's really delivering value at the speed of need, which means deliberately removing friction as much as you can. Yeah. Uh, and some friction maybe can be good. You know, as an advisor, you may want to help me make a more informed decision. So I may stay a bit longer, but I now learn more about the products you have. Or So it's it's uh, it's 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 interesting. Where do you see point of sale like five, 10 years from now? I mean, let's let's put our futurist hat on. Where, where, yeah. where, do you, where, where, where is your company jump mind going uh, five years from now? Yeah, I think it's interesting. There's a lot of new technology, obviously, in the in the POS space and just in stores. And, you know, you think of just walk out and some of the stuff you see around uh, you know, around those type of C, C stores that would offer those sorts of things. I think just at a broader level that what's very clear about the store experience is that retailers have put a lot on the associate, you know, and the store mm -hmm. associate has really gone through uh, and been asked to do a ton of things. And it's been accelerated by digital transformations and things like the pandemic, of course. But the way it's been done has made it really difficult for the store. Like, you go to a retailer and they've got a device that does this thing and a device that does this thing. And I was talking to one recently that told me that they have 32 apps that they're associated with. That's lovely. Super Like SpaceX uses 32 apps to go to, yeah, you know, go into space. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so I think that it's really, it's really about finding ways to simplify what the store is asked yeah. to do and how they do it. Because at the end of the day, I think, you know, a retailer expects that they're providing an omni-channel experience, whatever that experience might be. But the reality on the ground is that the associate isn't offering it to, the, to their customers because it's so complicated. So for us, we think it's all about this idea of a single pane of glass for the associate. Give them one device, compose all of the experiences, even if they come from third-party technology providers or in-house, compose it all into one omni-strategy that the retailer is mm -hmm. also providing, and then focus you know, really on UX, right? I think these days with, yeah. with apps and the way that we, the way that we use our phones and tablets, I like anybody, if I download an app and it doesn't work, you know, in five minutes, I, not even five minutes, I delete it, you know? So <laughs> this sure. whole world of making things complicated, you shouldn't need a training manual in store, you know? And, and for us, we think that really has value as it relates to even just cost savings, right? Of, yeah. A thousand new employees that you bring in temporary every year, you know, and training those sorts of things. Can we assume I'm that uh, cl clients that use JumpMind uh, have better employee retention? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I think that's that's one of the keys. When you give an associate the tools where they feel like they can be satisfied that's in their awesome. job, they can yeah. be. Because everybody at the end of the day wants to be effective. You know, right. like you you want to do a good job, but you're hampered by the technology. So you give someone the tools that where they can do the job. In, in a in, you know in a good way in the way that they that's want awesome. to they're more satisfied and obviously satisfied people are more likely to stick around than those that aren't awesome. you know that really drives that really drives the employee experience right and we, we can definitely see that approach yeah. take effect uh, i'm kind of curious about making it easy right the buy one get one free phenomenon meets buy now pay later uh and i'm doing a return <laughs> the, 
where's the other half? <laughs> That's going to be a very interesting problem. So, so those are like those are different trends that we're seeing in the marketplace for this holiday season. Uh, you know, what what's different? What's new and different on promotions? Uh, and what are you hearing from other retailers that's working? Yeah, you know what I think promotions is one or promotion promotional capabilities is really an interesting one because it's been, you know, in my view, pretty stale for quite a while. I think you, know, you go you go to a mall and you see most of the mall retailers having buy one get one fifty percent off or twenty percent off the entire store. You know all those sorts of things, and and I think the reality isn't that somebody isn't more creative. You know, like these retailers don't have more creative people on their marketing teams and their pricing teams to come up with some, you know, some things that would really pull you in the door. I think the reality is that they all run the same old legacy tech. There's a lot of old ERP that has historically managed all of the pricing and promotion for these stores. And it's limited in its flexibility, you know, to create them, to execute them in store, those sorts of things. So what what we're seeing is we talk to clients about what do they want to do? It's like we want to experiment. We want to try some different things. One of the ones that I always think of, like if I was a footwear retailer, buy two pairs of shoes, get socks at three for 15, four for 12, five for 10. Makes a lot of sense. But that's a, that's a mix of two different promotional types that historically you just can't execute and operate. So, so we look at it like, hey, there's got to be a way to give the tools to those folks that want to be able to experiment and try new things and differentiate compared to what their neighbor's doing in a, in a mall. That's very cool. That's very cool. Yeah, and the A-B testing on that's got to be fun, right? You can actually yeah. see that right away. I mean, given the analytics off the POS today, the POS device is an important signal that's out there. So we're here with Joe Corbin, CEO of JumpMind. Thank you so much for getting some insights as to what's happening in the holiday season and what retail trends and technology trends are about to pop up uh, pre-NRF. So, Thank you, Joe. Yeah, thank Thanks you. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, wow. when you when you can leverage technology to delight your stakeholders in real time, in person, it doesn't get better than that. Okay, right. That, that's like now, a tech for good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a privilege and an honor for us to have Margaret Hook, three times CEO, chair, and board member, and author of Tech for Good: Imagine Solving World's Greatest Challenges, a book that just came out this month. Due to her vision, purpose-driven leadership, Margaret has gained recognition. Over the years, as a global thought leader on sustainable business and capital, Margaret is a multi-golden award best-selling author of trailblazing titles like the New Economy Business and the Traditional Dollar Shift. Uh, uh, for, Fortune, wait, listen to this. Fortune praised the Traditional Dollar Shift, which highlights opportunities in UN's global uh, hold for business as required reading. Recognized by Thinkers 50 for Margaret's global management thinking, Margaret coined the slogan. Business for good. This is in 2014, nearly 10 years ago. To emphasize her mission to make business for good the norm rather than the exception. You can follow Margo on Twitter at M-A-R-G-A-H-O-E-K. Welcome, Margot, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Thanks for the great intro. It makes me almost shy. <laughs> I had I had to actually shorten it because we only have 20 minutes. Yeah, you've oh, done a lot. <laughs> you've done a lot. But Marga, we're, so, we're, so, we're excited to have you here. Um, let's really dive, dive down into what does tech for good mean today? And what is your vision for where we actually you know, manage this future uh, with advanced and exponential technologies? Yeah. I mean, nowadays, it's a special moment in time. Huh? On the one hand, we have COP28 in Dubai. 
On the other hand, around the world, we have a lot of debate about technology and that debate is kind of dominated by all the bad things it can do, all the fears we have around it or optimization um, potential that it has, like in the discussion just before, which is, which is important. But you know, what is much more important, I think, is that technology can actually improve our world. It can actually contribute to solving our world's greatest challenges like biodiversity loss, like climate change, like poverty, inequality, lack of access to education and, and, so, and so on and so forth. We can do things yep. we actually couldn't do before in places we couldn't reach before. So the potential is huge. And for that reason, I wanted to write this book, Tech for Good, as to, you know, inspire people to think more about, well, if you will, the upside of technology and how we can really make it a force for good. And having said that, there's a reason for business also to engage other than what I just said, because in the end, um, engaging with both technology and sustainability offers huge business opportunities. Yes. Unlocks new markets, you know, brings solutions to the world where there's a great need. So it's also a business opportunity. You have written and you've talked about the fourth industrial revolution and the technologies that exist within this era. Can you help us better understand what, what is the fourth industrial revolution and your point of view in terms of how we can best utilize technology for betterment of society? Yeah, thanks for that question. Good question. Well, let's summarize the first three industrial revolutions because probably not everybody uh, knows. We're so all we all here. In the 18th century with um, coal, which was the biggest um, transformation. And for the first time we could produce stuff. Then we went to the second industrial revolution with electricity, oil and gas, combustion energy, mass production and mass transformation, transportation around the world. And the 20th century brought the digitalization. So all of a sudden everybody was connected online digitally around the world. Then now we are, you know, just tiptoeing over the threshold of the fourth industrial revolution. And what is important is as opposed to former industrial revolutions that had only one or two big things, although they were very transformative and changed our world, this uh, revolution is, you could say like a huge toolkit. It has both physical technologies and digital technologies, and they can blend. So for the first time, it's a blending of the physical and the digital. That's a huge change. It's in a way more complex because like in the book, I describe eight technology groups. I mean, that's so much more than we had before, you know, with one big inventions. Sure. And within those groups, you have all kinds of varieties. And in fourth industrial revolution, we'll transform manufacturing like we did with the first and the second, because now all of a sudden we can apply things to manufacturing and to all other things. So the transformative power of the combination of all these technologies is huge. That's amazing. Yeah. And it will drive efficiency, productivity, yeah. and, and, and hopefully joy and happiness because it may be, as you described, eight different categories. Do you envision that you know our children will have colleagues that are machines? They're working in environments where there's smart robots and software and algorithms and 
you know, you, 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 is your manager someday uh, just a, a piece of software <laughs> yeah, guiding you? I mean, it's, it's yeah. the, the combinatorial effect of this, exactly. as you said, is, is really astounding. It's literally going to be everywhere yeah. and always. Always. And of course, as you say, you know, will your colleague be a robot? I mean, we all make these jokes, of course. Yeah. But I think it's important to focus on what is the outcome we want. I mean, it strikes me that, that when you look at the debate, you know, people blame technology and they fear technology, but actually we should blame and fear ourselves. huh? Right, right. Because it's people that are behind technology. We make the decisions how to apply it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's my, my fa the founder of my company actually often says technology is neither good or bad. It's how people use it. Yeah. It's literally my book. Technology right. itself is neutral. We give meaning to it. Right. Yes. And always blame the human. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's, that's for the uh, robot. <laughs> oh, that came out strong, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. but, but, you know, but this is this is important, right? We're, we're, we're getting is. more and more access to whole new advanced technologies. You know, some of them in the, in the tech world, as we know it, from an IT or ICT side of the world. Uh, sometimes even from the bio side of the world, in terms of the capabilities that we're able to do, and we're seeing that convergence of different, in, you know, different sets of disciplines coming together. How can exactly. we actually figure out where a business can actually accelerate access to those types of technologies, uh, especially in a way that they weren't able to do before? Well, can I add one thing then, Ray, with the objective to do something good with it? Yes, right. with something good. Yeah. Tech for good. So, if that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you there, Vaila. Because, you know, if you want to do that with your company yep. as a person, as a, a, you know, whomever, wherever, the important thing is to start with the objective, the outcome. So to what of the challenges, and I work a lot with the sustainable development goals, and that's not that complicated. It's 17 concrete challenges we have in the world, like poverty, climate change. Those yeah. things. If you start with those challenges in mind, and many companies do that nowadays, you know, what do you want to contribute to? Not only mitigating negative impact, but what do you want to contribute to? If you start thinking from the end goal back, so to say, and then think, okay, and what can technology do to help me here? So, for instance, if you want to um, impact food loss and waste in a positive way. And let's take the first part, the food loss, you know, because then we're talking about developing countries and, you know, South America, Africa, and all those countries where people are struggling to have a harvest, so to say. Yeah. If you want to have a positive impact on that, then you can come up with a combination of, of AI and data, with robotics, with algorithms, so that you warn them in time when there's storms coming, so that you tell them exactly when and how to give the water, et cetera, et cetera. It's a combination of tools. And the outcome is a much bigger harvest and a much continuous flow of, uh, of agricultural success. And that applies to whatever kind of business case you choose. Sure. Right. Sure. And that could be industry innovation. It could be, you know, whether you want clean water. Um, so you're taking down any of the elements of the SDGs. Uh, you can actually apply that to get to that level of good. So. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Margaret, you, you mentioned AI in, in your answer. And, and uh, you know, about a year ago, majority of the world opened their eyes to a particular class of machine learning called generative AI. 
Yeah. Uh, and that was, um, you know, uh, OpenAI. That was an eight-year-old company that most people didn't know about. But last yeah. October, in about oh, 60 yeah. days, 100 million people knew about OpenAI and ChatGPT. You know, last week I heard Elon Musk in an interview state that he believes AI has potential danger more so than nuclear bombs. Uh, so he has a lot of uh, a, a more conservative view in terms of the benefits of AI, unless we are more mindful, understanding its potential impact. Uh, you believe that technology can enhance our future. So can you talk about the, a positive outlook as to how technologies like generative AI, like ChatGPT, can be tech for good? Yeah, of course. And, and if Elon Musk says that, he's talking about the people behind technology, huh? Sure. And, you know, trust in technology is high. So people trust algorithms more than their neighbors, so to say. But the trust in the intentions of technology and the people behind it is at an all-time low. And that's because, you know, people do bad things with technology. But again, your colleague just said, blame always the humans. And that's that's correct. <laughs> the people that are behind it. Yeah, I remember that. But, blame the human. Blame the human. Yeah, humans. But let's talk a little bit about the good AI can do. So it's um, a system with which we can gather huge amounts of data, much more than any you know group of people could do, analyze it super quickly and draw conclusions and apply those conclusions. So what good can we do? We can, for instance, you know, diagnose uh, illness super quick and then save a lot of people as a consequence. We can analyze data on our ecosystem and in, uh, intervene much quicker if deforestation is happening too quickly, if uh, loss of biodiversity is happening somewhere, we can interfere much quicker. Sure. Um, we can improve agriculture, what we just talked about. We can improve education. All these fields, AI and data can do a huge amount of good. And on top of that, you know, I talked about the toolkit of technologies and AI and data is a foundational technology. It's like the ground you built your house on. Mm -hmm. So it's needed for a lot of applications to be able to perform foundational. So that is what we can do with it. But we have to put our minds to what we want the outcome to be. Sure. And focus on that. And if you look at the whole field of rules and regulation, which is far too slow, you know, that the pace is so much slower than the pace of technology, that it's like looking behind you see, oh, well, that was a bad run. Yeah, but they already have passed, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. But it has to focus more on, on, on the do no harm focus where everything's focused on to, you know, do good, have a positive impact. Because now often those positive impact initiatives are being held behind or are hindered because of wrong legislation. Sure. So, Margot, maybe maybe the point here is we should have AI write regulation in real time to counter yeah, the regulation time, that yeah. they're going against to see what happens. But but that's a great example of what might happen if you know as we pair humans with machines, right? You talk about four R's in terms of you know robotics, and you talk about other areas in terms of like autonomous vehicles and drones and uh, these companies, these items, uh, these actually equipment and technologies uh, replacing humans, right? We see that as well with like these industrial robots that have balance and shape and can move. Um, so what, what is but your there again, Ray, Sorry to interrupt you, but there again, about the robots replacing us, there's a lot of things <laughs> we as humans don't want to do. 
True. Do you want to go into the battlefield and rescue something, somebody? And I the do. I want the glory. I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> My wife might not, uh, but yes, I do want the glory. For example, to the wrong person, I think. But, anyway, <laughs> no, but yeah. uh, do you want to go during COVID? Do you want to, you know, check out hospitals and houses if they're contaminated? Do yeah. you want to do uh, the very dirty work if something's collapsed? Do you want to? Oh my God! There will be, there'll be no more dirty jobs. Like, what is our friend going to do? You no. Know, so there's a lot of things that <laughs> no. But in serious, being serious, a lot of things that are dangerous for people, or we don't want to do, or yeah. we can't do. So let's start with that instead of immediately thinking about ourselves, which kind of a bit of an egocentric, you know, approach. Oh, I'm going to be replaced. I mean, 25% of all jobs for sure will be changed. Mm. Okay. Uh, and there was a recent calculation by World Economic Forum, which I found interesting, said, you know, 85 million jobs will disappear. Well, then everybody goes like, oh, dear, mm. but 95 million will come back in return. Mm. So on average, there will be more jobs. I don't know. So, if we'll need about a, so we need about a million robots is what you're saying, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you could say that. But jobs will definitely change radically, you know. It's not going to be it like it was. It is, and, and we've got declining populations as well. As people age, yeah, you're going to need some of those. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I mean, listen, a quarter century ago, 25 years ago, or maybe 20 years ago, we didn't have cloud computing architects, social media managers, Uber drivers, drone operators, and we can go on. I bet you we can come up with 200 titles that didn't exist 20 yeah, years ago. The future is worrying us. Yeah, you're right. With <laughs> robo-taxis, you're right. Uber drivers... Well, most likely, probably in the next 20 years, because you got to get to autonomy level, probably five for robo taxis to replace completely Uber drivers. You know, but I think like the elevator operator is probably the only job I can think of that's completely disappeared due to technology. I don't see yeah. them anymore. Um, so, you, so you have an optimistic view, again, that as technologies evolve, future of work will have job titles that don't exist today. And, you know, if I'm a firefighter, yes, I'm going to have a drone as the first line of response, exactly. you minimize the fire. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then you walk in and help, you know, rescue folks. And so it may be a hybrid environment where you de-risk your life uh, because you don't want to be the first guy go or gal going into a house that's burning or a building. But you'll have uh, hopefully opportunity to minimize the risk using example uh, drone in this case. Your thoughts about future of work and, and jobs and new titles. And what do managers and business leaders need to think about when they're thinking about tech for good? Do they at the beginning need to make sure we're building technology that serves humanity for good? And also, are we able to adjust when we realize that what we thought was good may be not as good as it can be? That's a that's a good point. Can I can I go into your last point? You know, please, please. We, yeah, we yeah, please. Optimize. You know, the whole debate, for instance, around um, climate change and reducing your negative footprint is about less bad. So we do a little bit less. Let's take let's take an example. Let's take houses and buildings as an example. You know, all through the, uh, all around the world, we have labels and then you have to label down or label up, you know, whatever the system is to, to be a little bit less bad and reduce your footprint. In reality, what we can do now when we build when build new houses or any other type of building, they have to be powerhouses, meaning they have to have a positive footprint because, right. you know, it's not even experimental technology to, to make buildings that create energy with their walls, with their roofs, with their windows. 
So we have a surplus of renewable energy per building, providing the environment. Sure. And that's the minimum, that should be the bar, nothing less. Sure. And so uh, technology should, in that sense, shift the debate and raise the bar all around. Yeah, we definitely hope that it does. And I think that's one of the things that's the premise of your book. You know, if you're a reader of this book and they are done reading it, what do you hope they get? Do you hope they take action? Do you hope they become active in terms of making this, you know, much more positive or thinking about what their decisions are going to be? Uh, what, what do you see that in terms of, you know, reaching global goals? Well, I... Let me tell you, when I wrote the book, and it takes three years, you know, with all the research. Oh, it takes forever. Valley of death actually really exists. Then, you know, the, the most interesting thing as an author is when you finish the book, because then you can rise above your own book mm. and, you know, come oh, well to said. some interesting thoughts like, what is now deep down the reason what I did it? And what do I hope that? to your question way that people take away from it. And then I realized, actually, this is a book of hope. Because uh, all books should be that. Certainly yeah. all nonfiction books should be that. Yeah. yeah, doom and gloom around us. It just doesn't help. Right. And I want, and then I came up with the word, I'll show you one spread that people can see it. Then I came up with the word imagine, because I realized what I want is people to literally dare to imagine what we can do instead of dwelling on what we cannot do because that simply doesn't help and no, it makes nobody happy. So in the book, can you see that? Yes. Every yes. chapter has yes. a page with imagine. Yep. And in that page I write, and I hope that touches people's, not only people's minds, but also their souls and their hearts, what that specific technology can do. So, for instance, with 3D printing, I found that, you know, our coral reefs, our beautiful coral reefs are about to disappear huh, over the next ah, decade. Plastic soup. And will be gone if we don't radically change things. I mean, we can weep and, and you know, be sorry for it. But hear this. We now have 3D printing with such high quality that we are actually able to repair our coral reefs. We can print coral reef and by the whole um, ecosystem around it, plants and, and animals is not recognized as artificial, is embraced as original, mm -hmm. not saying that we should further destroy coral reefs, but we can, you know, regenerate our planet with it. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? And that mm -hmm. is true for so many of those technologies isn't that worth you know putting yourself and asking yourself to have a positive attitude is that not worth it it is i think it, it is. is definitely it worth is. it and we are well, here into with the action. Marga. we're here with marga hoek more importantly uh one of the things that you have are 75 use cases in that book yeah. 75 examples of where you can take tech for good yeah. to the next level. And of course, we can pick up the book, but the book is only less than 11 days old. Uh, it thank is. you so much for being here. Congratulations <laughs> on getting this out the door. We're here. And of course, three time CEO, chair, and board member, and author of Tech for Good Imagine Solving the World's Greatest Challenges. Please follow her on Twitter or X, Marga H O E K. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Marga. So much. It was a great pleasure to join you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hope, hope.
And uh, we Maybe always hope, we always hope to have eight-time best-selling authors on our show, and sometimes our hope comes to fruition. <laughs> Richard Harworth, author of Strategic, the skill to set direction, create advantage, and achieve executive excellence. Rich is founder and CEO of the Strategic Thinking Institute, where he's the strategy facilitator, advisor, and coach to executive leadership teams. Rich is New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author of, hey, listen to this, eight books. You and I wow. really need to step up our game. We are so <laughs> strategic, we are, so strategic, we are, we are. <laughs> on strategic thinking and related, uh, and rated the number one keynote speaker on strategy and national events, including Society of Human Resources Management Strategy Conference. Rich has been described by Chief Executive Magazine as the world's foremost expert on strategic thinking. Rich has helped more than a quarter million people develop their strategic thinking and planning capabilities over the last 20 years in pursuit of his vision to teach the world to be strategic. Rich serves as professor of management at Lake Forest Graduate School of Management, where he was consistently ranked as top strategy uh, professor by the students, uh, the folks that matter most. Welcome, Rich, to the Shrub TV. Valo Ray, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. And just to build on your idea of hope, hope is not a strategy, folks. Thinking is. So uh, excited to talk to you both today. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> We're so excited to have you here. You know, your book came out early in November, and, uh, you know, it was just amazing the number of people that really thought, you know, this was so important to be able to be think about disciplines around being strategic. Why, why did you write this book? Um, because the world is getting more complex or because people need more simplicity or they need more clarity. Like what drove this? Because there are lots of strategy books. Yeah, absolutely. Ray. Great point. So the first thing that we want to think about is as a leader, are we able to take all the complexity, all the, the, the speed out there and really come up with clarity around who we are, who we want to be and how we're going to get to where we want to go. So the reason I wrote the book is really 70% of executives feel overwhelmed today by the amount of data, the amount of information that's coming at them each and every day. So really what I wanted to do was share with folks on a, a, a compass to help them navigate their business day in and day out. And that compass really involves four areas, strategy, leadership, organization, communication. And then with each of those areas, the last 10 years of, as I've done executive coaching, I've tried to create very practical tools, checklists, and techniques for folks to use day in and day out to really master those four areas. So again, the book really is a, is a, is a way for executives to clarify, to simplify their business in order to be successful. It's like getting four separate books in one. I mean, it's pretty wild. So it, it's and, and, and Rich, can you can you because we have a wide range of folks that watch the show from young entrepreneurs to senior executives. Can you define strategy for us? Yeah, Vala, thanks for asking that. You know, there's 91 different definitions floating around wow. out there, according to the research. And, and in my research with about 500 different organizations, less than half, 44%, said that they have a common language for strategy. So a lot of the folks, to your point, that are out there probably are spending a lot of time inefficiently trying to get everybody on that proverbial same page. So the way I define strategy is really it's that allocation of resources through unique system of activity. We have to have some differentiation if we're talking about strategy in order to achieve our goal. So simply put, strategy is how you uniquely plan to achieve your goal. Wow, very concise, very accurate. Thank you. Yeah, that's, great. that's a great point. And not just along with strategy. I mean, uh, I mean, 
people will have different ways of thinking that they're being strategic. Like think about all these people that attempt to develop strategy and it's really not strategy. It's so tactical. It's like operational. It like barely gets you past the second quarter. Um, I don't know. What, what are some of those mistakes people make and, and how, how do they identify it when they realize like, oh, that wasn't strategic. Like I'm sure you have like, that thing with like- so so, Ray, you're associating a time horizon when you say tactical, operational, strategic. I could be wrong. I, I don't know. There's 91 definitions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but is, is it a more long, long-term thinking when you're thinking about when you use words like strategy versus words like tactical, operational? Can you provide some clarity in terms of in your expert point of view? What's the what's the what is there is there a time horizon you should think about when you're thinking about resource allocation and meeting your objective? Yes, Vala, you know, when I think about strategy, I use what I call the ghost framework, goals, objectives, strategies, tactics. There's lots of other terms people throw around when they're planning, but those are the four oldest terms. You go back 2,500 years to uh, Sun Tzu, the uh, Chinese general philosopher had the writings which became the book, The Art of War. Those are the foundational planning terms. So to your point, I don't necessarily equate them with a time horizon, uh, goals and objectives. So again, if we think about any plan, so it's the plan for your company, your sales, team, maybe it's a plan for the food bank that you volunteer with on the weekend, you want to answer two questions. What are we trying to achieve and how are we going to do it? So that ghost framework, goals and objectives answer what are you trying to achieve? The goal is generally what you're trying to achieve. Let's say climb a mountain. The objective is more specifically what you're trying to achieve. So maybe in that case, ascend 3,000 feet each day for four days to get that 12,000 foot summit. So objectives are smart, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, time bound. A strategy and tactics that are answering that second question of a good plan, how are we going to get there? Strategy is general. So how are we going to get to that top? Do we go straight up? Do we zigzag? Do we go around the other side? And then the tactics are those specific tangible things that are going to help us get there. So again, that ghost framework really answers those two questions. What are you trying to achieve? How are you going to do it? And to Ray's point, that's the biggest mistake people make is they confuse strategy with aspirations such as goals. You, a lot of times you'll see strategy is to be number one in the market, to be the premier provider of service X. Those aren't strategies. Those are goals. So we got to understand the answers to those two questions. And you're very clear in the book. You say it's not an aspiration. It's not a best practice. And it's not being cautious, which, which is really, really powerful in terms of defining that. So. Yeah, th thanks, Ray. And, and to that point, the reason we want to do that is because 70% of employees say that their that their senior leadership has too many priorities and they don't kill bad initiatives fast enough. So if that's the case, if we don't have strategy, we don't have priorities, then we don't have the ability to make trade-offs. And you know, uh, uh, Ray, in your book, uh, what I one of the chapters I love was on decision velocity, and that's something I see all the time in my work is people not able to accelerate their decision making because they haven't planned out a strategy that everybody agrees on and everybody understands. So again, if you're going to increase decision velocity, like you talk about in your book, we've got to have a strategy in place that acts as those guardrails or that filter for opportunities. This is perhaps the first time an eight-time best-selling author, Ray, is referencing your book. This is pretty awesome. That's so cool. That's so cool. So so when I listen, Rich, when I listen to you, I think about strategic excellence to me, it feels like this is this is not hygiene, this is health. 
And so you have to have a regiment that allows you to get fit uh, in order to be able to achieve strategic excellence. And you talk about strategic fitness system. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, Val, that's a great point. So, you know, when you look at the average CEO exercises 45 minutes a day, at least five days a week. So that's that's pretty impressive, really, when you think about the schedules that, that the CEOs have 45 minutes a day on average, five or six days a week. That's great. But then let's think about how how much time are they spending developing their strategic fitness? So, again, you know, we, if, if we play the guitar once a year, if we play golf once a year, we're going to be terrible at those things. But a lot of people say, well, we're going to do strategy once a year and then we're going to be on that activity treadmill the rest of the 11 and a half months until we have to pull the plan back out that doesn't work we've got to be strategic day in and day out we've got to turn strategy from what's typically a birthday where it happens once a year there's a lot of signage and fanfare then it goes away so really what i'm advocating with the strategic fitness system is hey on a regular basis, think about three A's, acumen. What's the new insight here that's going to create new value for our customers? The second A, allocation. How are you going to configure your resources, your time, your people, your budget in order to be successful? And then that third A is action. What's the priority that's going to keep your team on track this year so they're not bouncing around like a bumper car at the carnival from one thing to the next? Is that why you're a prolific writer? I mean, I'm trying to figure out what inspires someone to write eight <laughs> books, eight books. Is the writing, is the process, I know, you know, I read to improve my writing. I write to improve my thinking. Are you a prolific writer because you're trying to maintain that, that lack of thought leadership fitness as the number one strategic thinker in the world? What, what motivates you to write excellent books at such volume? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Vala, I think to your point, all of us who write, and you you both write as well, uh, are and great great writers. It, it's about reading also, right? We have to get inspired. We have to be out reading. We have to be talking to yep. people, getting yep. ideas. Yep. You know, Vala, in your book Boundless, you talk about the importance of killing silos, right? And I'm a big believer in that as well because. The big issue I'm seeing today in many organizations is a lack of collaboration, intentional collaboration. And maybe that happened because of uh, being everybody being virtual for a year or so. But the reality is great leaders have to be intentional about collaboration. That's the way that we span the silos, Vala, that you talk about in your book. So I, I'm a big believer that, look, if you're going to be prolific in anything, you've got to study other people. You've got to always have a humble mindset and always understand that there's things that we can learn to be better. Uh, Ray, no, Rich is quickly becoming uh, our favorite. I, guest. I know. I mean, he, <laughs> when, are you, I mean come, when are you coming back to disrupt? Go ahead. Sorry, <laughs> I mean, You're very he's got good. the flow down. He's got that in. Like, it actually makes me wonder, right? Like, you know, those management, those management gurus of the 50s, they were linear thinkers, right? Yes. They didn't get, I mean, everything was waterfall. Like, they, it was like a straight line flow. And today, it's just about managing the chaos and orchestrating together. And one of the things that you talk about is really, you know, that need to get to and, uh, well, situational awareness, right? How do we get there? It's, it's very underappreciated. It's not something that's there. Can leaders do that? And is that different? And I, I kind of know the answer, but just people would say, is that different from multitasking or information overload? So how do you, how do you help people with managing situational awareness? Yeah. So the first thing we have to do is stop judging, put down the, put down the gavel and stop 
considering everything is good or bad, positive or negative, because the reality is we waste so much time trying to judge things as good or bad, judging people as good or bad, judging meetings as good or bad. It's a complete waste of time. We need to go into every conversation, every interaction with a with a with an explorer's mindset. I'm here to discover mm. things that I don't know today. I, it's not about staying against the shore like the, the the adage says. It's about going perpendicular. You can't go perpendicular if you walk into the room, think you know everything, judge everybody in five seconds, and then walk away saying, yeah, that's exactly what I expected it to be. So we've got to come in with a blank slate. And we've got, to, we've got to come in with a notebook or an app on our phone, and we got to walk out of every interaction jotting down, not just thinking about, but jotting down, what did I take away in that interaction? What was my learning? And I'm a big believer in scoring every interaction that we're in zero to three. Zero was zero value. Three was high value. And at the end of the week, add those up. Start taking the things that are zero value and pull those off your calendar with a chainsaw. Hack those off and start putting things on that are more threes so it's not about that. good or bad it's about high value low value absolutely I, yeah i think today too often ray it's a great point too often we're thinking about activity and not value and I, I do, you know, even though we're, we're, we're evolving as, a, as, a, as an economy, as a marketplace, we still spend too much time on activity and not, a not enough time on thinking. I, if it was up to me, I would replace the phrase fail fast with think first, because I think too often we're so reactionary. People aren't thinking. We're reacting to text. We're reacting to social media. We're not stepping back and thinking, what's my perspective on this? <laughs> that's, that's an awesome think first. I... I, I I realized that with long form writing, um, you know, I, I, I write, I don't know, 60, 70 articles a year for a publication called ZDNet. And I find a lot of my writing for short form is reflexive in nature. Yep. I, I hear news, chat GPT, XYZ, and then I respond to it. Sure. Where with long form, with a book, it's more reflective. Yep. It's, it's a deeper, or at least an attempt for deeper understanding. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and so it, it does enhance my situational awareness. And by the way, you referenced meeting. And one of the shocking stats that you write about is 85% of senior executives mm -hmm. uh, think that meetings is not a good use of their time. And these are senior executives that are supposed to be role models for making sure they're adding value to the best of their abilities. And I guess part of the answer was not only scoring, but also approaching yeah, meetings with a beginner's mindset where you are in a, in a mode of exploring and the best ideas should win, not the best titles. Uh, so, so when reading your book and listening to you, it feels like you can teach strategy at any age. You don't have to, it's not something that, Oh, you need 15 years of experience to be a strategic thinker. Mm -hmm. You could follow your blueprint and your formula and learn about the power of strategy at any age. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely, Vala. The, the reality is everybody out there listening is and watching is a strategist because you think about it, strategy is the intelligent allocation of your resources, your time, your talent, and any budget. We all have time and talent. How you spend that each week dictates whether you're tactical or strategic. And here's a newsflash. Nobody ever got promoted saying, you know, she's highly tactical. Let's move her up to senior vice president level. That's not going to happen. I've never heard that. Right, you 25 never heard years that. of work, I've never heard that. She or he would make a great COO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. so, 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 yeah, to your point, Vala, you, yes, I think anybody can be strategic. It's it just create, creating the awareness 
and then the hunger to jot down our insights. I define an insight as a learning that leads to new value. The best companies I'm working with today have accountability for insights at every level of the organization, which means they're building that strategic thinking capability at every level because strategic thinking is simply the generation of insights on a regular basis that leads to advantage. So again, if you wanna create a true learning organization, create accountability for insights, share those insights internally, and you're going to definitely increase people's capabilities in that area. And none of this is to minimize the importance of quality, tactical execution, quality, operational. In other words, if you're not really good at doing the small work, you're not going to get the opportunity to do the big work. Is, I mean, that's, is, that, is that fair? I mean, you know, it's, it's and, and most, I'm guessing, and I'm going to ask you, I'm assuming that folks that are excellent at strategy through their career uh, have, have, are also excellent at doing tactical and operational assignments. Fair to say? Yeah, Val, you know, you go back to Porter, right? Uh, out of Harvard Business oh, School, yeah. competitive advantage, competitive strategy. He talks about the difference between operational effectiveness and strategy. And operational effectiveness is basically running the same race as your competitor, only trying to run a little faster. Strategy is actually designing a different path to run on. Yeah, so right, when we're, right, so you're, right. to your point, yes, we want to be strong operationally and tactically because we need to get the fundamental things done. Strategy sure. is really about how are you going to separate yourself from the competition, which much might be internal competition, external competition. It might be the status quo. So again, there's lots of different types of competition, but anytime we're talking about strategy, there's some element of competition. That's what separates that from operational effectiveness. My favorite part, and I know we're running out of time, was really part four, the communication fitness piece. There was a lot of soft skills that leaders should be learning. And you know, in collaboration, I mean, you, got, you talked about the need for enhancing collaboration. Uh, having a facilitation framework. But check this out, Bala. Trailblazers was listed in there. Oh. <laughs> Every business leader should have a copy of Strategic on their desk. So thank you so much for expanding our mind. Thank you, Rich. Hey, All thanks right. a lot thank for being on the show. We're yeah. so excited to have you and congratulations on the book. Rich Horath, eighth book, author of Strategic, the skill to set directions, create advantage and achieve executive excellence. Follow him at Rich Horath. Um, on Twitter or X, as you call it. So, see so, ya. Yeah. Happy Thank Friday. You, Thanks, guys. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that hour go? Why does it that feel like we only had five-minute conversation with, like, these big brains that come and expand our minds? Ray, try to summarize uh, the, the last hour for us, please. <laughs> yeah, you know, the uh, big part when we kicked off with uh, Joe was really sure. thinking about where what was going on with what's happening with retail, right? And, you know, point of sale is really where the action is. That's the interaction point. That's what's going on. And we notice that it's getting much more human, much more humanized, uh, but more importantly, the ability to actually improve outcomes, improve those experiences. That's really where people are headed. And especially given that retail's made a comeback, uh, not just on the commerce side, but in-store experiences. Sure. Marga actually helped us think about what was going on with tech for good. We've got to put these technologies to play so that we're actually, you know, thinking about other outcomes and other experiences that are beyond just profit. And I think she was trying to find, you know, the technology is not the issue. It's always coming down to the individual on the other end using that technology and how to make that much more useful. And of course, what we learned from Rich is really that notion of strategy and having a strategic fitness system or being able to think in the longer term, not just not not just long term, but more value oriented way uh, is really what's going to be driving the next set of leaders in terms of how they think about strategy.
Thank you. Thank you. That's an excellent, excellent summary. And uh, yeah, we could have talked to each guest for the entire hour. So that was fantastic. Next, next week, we, uh, which is episode 346, uh, we are with John Reed, co-founder of Diginomica, one of my, one of our favorite guests. Uh, I think he's first ballot hall of fame disrupt inductee, <laughs> John Reed. We have Wendy Lushgold and Lisa McCarthy, co-founder of the Fast Forward Group and the authors yep. of forthcoming book, Fast Forward, Five Power Principles to Create the Life You Want in Just One Year. One Year. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, and we'll have a surprise segment where we'll, uh, well, we'll talk about it next week. But if it's Friday, oh. it's Disrupt TV. <laughs> Go ahead, Ray. Uh, oh, no, it's a secret segment, but you'll all enjoy it. <laughs> So yeah, I think I think you'll enjoy uh, quite a bit. We're 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 having a great time creating the last segment for what will be the last show for 2023 next week. So we look forward to tuning in uh, with you next next week, and then we'll shed some light about what to, you can expect in 2024 from Disrupt TV as well. Again, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next Friday. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody.